Unanswered prayers is often a dilemma for people. Uh, it's, it's, it's like, how can we pray and pray and pray and nothing happen? Well, the scriptures explain this morning in Revelation 5 what God has done with all those unanswered prayers, where they are, what he's planning to do with them, and when. And not just when, how he's going to take those prayers and those, those requests that his will be done that we haven't seen happen, how he's going to accomplish that. Revelation chapter 5 is all about what happens to all our prayers. We pray them, where do they go? What happens to them? What happens when we pray according to the will of God, according to the word of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, what does God do? Is it kind of like uh, prayers become like deleted emails? God gets them and sees them on his screen. He reads them, and then he just hits the delete button, and they're gone. You know, my computer, if I leave the sound on, even has a sound for the delete. It's kind of like crunching up in a, uh, you know, like a shredder. Is that what he does? No. Revelation 5 tells us that God doesn't delete our prayers. Rather, he collects them. Prayers from God are brought to him. Prayers that, that issue from the Spirit of God within our hearts are brought to him from every saint. Now, for just a moment, the, the eighth verse, if you just want to look at it, I want to show you what I'm talking about. In the eighth verse, it says, the last line says, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, get a perspective. All the saints... That means from the very first who placed their hope in the substitutionary work of a, of a sacrifice, that's Adam and Eve, the first human beings ever created, Adam and Eve, from Adam and Eve through every person alive on earth today that is indwelt by the Spirit that's praying, God has heard and captured all those prayers. That's the concept the Bible wants us to have, that there aren't any out there, unaccounted for, missing, you know, never delivered in fact, it reminds me when I was at Hazlitt uh, High School, one of the assignments for um, English class, uh, upper level English was, we were reading uh, uh, one of the obscure works of Melville, and it was called Bartleby the Scrivener. And it's an it's a unusual little piece, and what he does is he talks about a guy that worked in the dead letter office in England 150 or 200 years ago. And, and basically, this guy sat in a room, and all the, the undeliverable mail, he had to open it and read it and try and do something about it, and the story ends with him dying. Because it was so sad, you know, like a letter would say, yes, I'll marry you, and it was never delivered, you know? Uh, and, and, uh, or your son uh, is ill and dying, please come and see him, and boom, it's in the dead letter office. Are prayers like dead letters? Are they like deleted emails? Well, as we open to verse 8 of chapter 5, think for a moment what it means to pray. You and I have been invited to lay at the feet of Almighty God the deepest longings of our heart. That's where they end up. Do you catch that? The prayers all get there. And they don't just... They are collected and laid at the feet of Almighty God. That's, that's a phenomenal thing for me to think about that, that the prayers that I offer get beyond just the, my mind or the room or as far as my voice can carry, and they actually are brought before God himself. 
You know, that's why the Apostle Paul said to pray without what? Ceasing, right? When we realize, when you realize, how, how many of your prayers have made it? How many of your prayers are laid in front of the throne of God? It, when, when you realize how important they are, that, that they aren't off in the dead letter office. They're actually, as we'll see here and in chapter 8, they're actually right in front of his throne. Makes you wonder, should I pray more? Is there more that he wants me to? If they're that important, he collects them. I want to pray more. God collects and saves every prayer from his saints. And that's what we see here in Revelation and starting in chapter 5, verse 8. We're going to read all the way through chapter 6, verse 1. And basically, this morning, I'm, I want to tie together our prayers, God's will, and the coming vengeance God himself is going to pour out upon the world. And all of that, the Bible connects. Our prayers, God's will, and his ultimate plans for the last days for the human race. Those three things are all connected in this passage. So you got Revelation 5 verse 8 open. Let's all stand and remain standing. We're going to read, then I'll pray, and then we're going to study this passage. Starting in chapter 5 verse 8, it says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Last line of verse 8 which are the prayers of the saints. There they are. They're encircling the throne. And they sang a new song saying in verse 9, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Now, in this context, as that was happening, you understand, this is tied together. The chapter divisions didn't hit the Bible till the 12th century. The verse divisions till the 16th. It's all one continuous, beautiful picture. Now, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals and heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, come and see. God connects for us the prayers of the saints his will and his vengeance the chapter 6 verse 1 unleashes for the final generation of earth this incredible scene of the tribulation let's bow for a word of prayer father thank you that we get to pray if 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 those who are uh, busy and distracted and have so many things on their mind 
don't remember anything else. May they realize and may it be imprinted on all of our hearts that you collect every one of our prayers that are offered by redeemed hearts and minds, energized by your spirit in accordance with your working within us. You collect every one of those prayers. You treasure them. You hold them. And you're going to answer them because your will is going to be done and your kingdom is going to come. Teach us what that means and help us to pray more, to trust more, and to see the big picture more clearly than ever before because of your word revealed to us by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, look back at your Bibles now that you can hold them still and not be standing up. And I want to I show you the beautiful framework that, that God's word lays down for us. Now, remember that God inspired this and that every word of God is pure and he chose every word and the Holy Spirit engineered the Bible so that what's in there is exactly what he wants. Remember John said, if everything possible just about the ministry of Christ had been written down, all the world couldn't hold the books. So this book was divinely engineered to be just what's in it. Well, what's in it? Look, look at verse 8. When he had taken the scroll. Now, what are we talking about? Do you remember the scroll? Uh, it reminds me a little bit. This is a little bit like the Occupy, whatever that movement was uh, uh, in the last year. Remember the Occupy Wall Street thing where they, like in New York City, they just came and, and took over lots in downtown Manhattan and just made tent city. Well, did you know people owned most everything in Manhattan, so it's like they were tent sitting on somebody's property. And finally, after the initial, you know, hoopla got over, the owners came down, took their deed to, you know, the, the law, and says, you know what, that tent city, that mess is on my property. I would like you to do something about it, evict them. That, that's based on the title deed, the ownership of that property that they had trespassed on. Did you know that's exactly what this is? This is the, this is, the scroll is, is what most Bible scholars call the title deed of the universe. And the squatter, the initial one, is Satan. And he took a third of the angels with him. And they're in rebellion and they've enlisted most of humanity. And they're trespassing. They're, they're on God's property, not honoring him as king. And so this scene is the Almighty on the throne, the title deed, his ownership of the universe sitting at his right hand. And look what it says. He, that's the lamb, had taken the scroll. So Jesus, the, after he is crucified, buried, risen, and ascended to heaven, and there he is in heaven before the throne, and all the redeemed are surrounding the throne, the 24 elders, he walks up to the throne and takes this title deed. And look what the context is at the end of the eighth verse. The context of this scroll being enacted upon. The, the whole idea of the title deed to the universe being broken open the seals and the conquest and the eviction, as it were, of the squatters. It says, each of these had a harp, golden bowls full of incense. And look at this key word, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, now, this is just setting the scene in chapter 5. Do you want to see what happens with these prayers? Look at chapter 8 and verse 3. This is so amazing. When, when all of this starts coming down, when it all starts happening, look at chapter 8. It says, then another angel having a golden censer. What's a censer? 
Oh, you've got to read the Old Testament to understand it. Did you know that the book of Revelation is totally predicated upon an understanding of the Old Testament? There are 404 verses here. Over 800 times those 404 verses refer to the Old Testament. So here's a censer. We would know what that is from Exodus and Leviticus. And he stood at the altar. What's an altar? Well, again, the altar he's talking about is described in the Old Testament because everything that is built in the tabernacle and temple Moses patterned it after what he saw in the heavenly sanctuary. God took him up on Mount Sinai and showed him the, the plans to reproduce what God has in heaven on earth. That, that Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense and all those things were all components of something we're just seeing a little bit of here in Revelation in heaven. So this altar, and they were given incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar. Whoa. There's another Old Testament thing. Do you remember there were seven pieces of furniture in the tabernacle and temple? Do you remember that right in front of that big thick veil that, that shut off everybody from the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was? Right in front of the entrance to that place where the, the Shekinah glory, where God's presence was manifested, the only light in that, that inner room was his glorious presence. Right in front of that curtain is this golden altar. See, on earth, God, his throne, was represented by the Ark of the Covenant. In heaven, there's, there's actually the throne and God seated upon it. And just like on earth, in front of the seated presence of God was this, art, this golden altar, we find the same correspondence in heaven. And this golden altar was before the throne. And that's where all the prayers of the saints are poured out and rise in front of God. Do you understand what this is saying? God is seated on his throne. Right in front of him is this place where all the prayers come. And they rise before him. He doesn't lose any of them. He doesn't lose track of them. It's not like us and he misplaces stuff. They all get placed there. But they don't, they're not inert Look, look what happens in verse 4. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascends before God from the angel's hands, and the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, verse 5 says, and threw it to the earth. That is a, a description visually of God taking the prayers and answering them in his perfect time in his perfect way. Now, back to chapter 5, because now we're getting way ahead. We're not even in that section of the Bible. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just wanted to show you that. Back to chapter 5. In verse 9, they're singing a new song because they're saying, you are worthy to take this scroll. Now, he takes it, and he's holding it. So it says, you're worthy to take this scroll. But look at verse 9, what it says, and to open its seals. John was weeping earlier in the chapter. He says, nobody could open the scroll. That's because only the one who died for sins can judge sins. That's what John 5 says. Jesus is the only one that can, to whom has been delivered all judgment. He is the judge. Remember, if you don't meet him as Savior and Redeemer, you're going to someday face him as judge. That's the, you know, what the Bible always says, that he's the creator, he's the Redeemer, but he's also the judge. So if you don't meet your creator as your redeemer, you're going to face him as your judge. And this is the beginning of him showing his judging. He's going to open these seals, verse 9 says. Now, watch what happens. Verse 14, 
No seals have been opened yet, okay? The seals don't start until chapter 6. That's why I lopped over and read that first verse a couple minutes ago. But look at verse 14. Before he opens the seals, before he unleashes the, the eviction process of sin from the universe, of rebellion from the earth and from the universe, the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever. Now look at verse 1. Now when I saw the Lamb, when I saw when, the Lamb opened one of the seals. Do you see the context for what we call the tribulation? The tribulation starts in chapter 6. In the Bible, the tribulation period portrayed most extensively is in Revelation 6. And God gives us the the setting, the background, the reasoning behind the horrors that will come to the earth. And, and what's going on is that God is waiting until Jesus, the Redeemer, the Creator who is the Redeemer, finally steps forth as the judge. And the judgment starts in chapter 6, verse 1. But what's the context? What's going on as, as all hell breaks loose on earth? Everybody in heaven is worshiping God and falling before him. Because what they're saying is, you are just, you are holy, you are right, and you're finally answering all those prayers to right all wrong and to bring vengeance. Well, the clear message of the sequence described by John is this. God is showing us the plan for his wrath against sin. Um, you know, the, this morning, and, and I mentioned it briefly, and I'll mention it again, uh, New York Times said that, that the correspondents are going through Damascus, you know, Syria, this whole war has been going on there. And they were allowed into Dura, one of the suburbs of Damascus. Damascus is a city of over a million people. And down in this one southern suburb, Dura, uh, the newspaper, newscaster came in and took a video and it showed inside a mosque. That's like a church for the Muslims. 120 bodies doused in kerosene and burned, charred, each one could be seen with a bullet hole right there. 120 of them. Men, women, children. And you know what the paper said? New York Times says, this is an atrocity. Who's going to do something about it? Did you know that's what the world has been saying for centuries? Why aren't you doing anything about this, God? Look at this atrocity, 120 men, women, and children killed, and look at the 6 million Jews, and look at the 20 million killed in World War II. Who's going to do anything about it in the genocide in Rwanda? Why aren't you doing something? And for all those who are praying and saying, God, do something, God says, I haven't lost a one. They're all right here. And there is a day, and there is an hour, and there is a moment when the Lamb is going to break that seal and all of the wrath of God is going to pour out. Now, for just a moment, turn to uh, Revelation, I mean to Romans chapter 2. I want to show you something. Because I want you to see why he waits. I mean, that's a, a perplexing question. Why he waits. And, and why God waits is that God is going to answer with 15 chapters of response. 
But he's waiting because in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, it says, But you, in accordance with your hardness and the impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, God is responding. But he is angry against sin every moment. But he's not, he's not reaching out and, and punishing it right now. Now, there's an under, remember, there is kind of like an operating system going on in the world that you commit sin, and sin brings decreasing satisfaction, increasing desire. And so all these people are in this, that's why so many of the, the mega popular entertainers have very short lives because they're wealthy, they have everything at their feet, and they, they enjoy sin, but there's a decreasing satisfaction, increasing hunger, and so they have to, you know, supplement it with alcohol and drugs and chemicals and experiences, and finally they just waste away. So that is part of God's judgment. Just like, you know, you commit immorality and you're going to get this new super antibiotic resistant venereal disease, you know, that, that they're talking about in Britain. You know, they thought that they had enough so that all the different venereal diseases were covered, and now they've got totally resistant forms. That isn't God's. I mean, we have to be careful when people with signs say God is judging, you know. with That is subliminal. That's kind of the operating system underneath, that that goes on without God going, you know, and poking those people and saying, ah, you got it now, ah, you got it now. That just is providence at work. This is, look at, look at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, verse 7. But verse 8, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey un unrighteousness, look at what it says at the end of verse 8. Indignation and wrath. Now wait a minute. Isn't God angry that someone shot 120 people in the head and charred their bodies in a mosque? Mm -hmm. He is. God hates sin, murder. He hates injustice. But verse 5 of Romans 2 says, he's treasuring up his wrath for a moment. And when that moment comes, the seal gets broken and he starts judging. That's what the whole tribulation is about. See, the tribulation is not about a chart. It's about an event of God bringing finally, righting all wrongs, bringing vengeance that has been waiting and pouring out his righteous wrath. Now, back to chapter 5 of Revelation, because I want to show you, it isn't just us that have been dealing with this. Notice what it says in verse 8, the last line, which are the prayers of the saints. Who has been praying for all this stuff God's collected and he's going to act on someday? Who is it? Well, it's the saints. Believers are called saints from the very first prophecy in God's word. In fact, Enoch, the seventh human being, the seventh generation of human beings from the first human being, Adam, who God created a, from his body a helpmeet suitable and corresponding to him, named her Eve. From those first two human beings, the seventh generation of children, the seventh one was named Enoch. So we're talking about really close to the beginning of humanity, of history, of earth. Because the earth was only six days old when Adam showed up. So we're talking about, wow. And this Enoch prophesied about the future, the second coming. And it's captured in the book of Jude. And it says, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his 
saints. So from the very seventh generation from Adam, we're talking about people who follow the Lord are called saints. In fact, from Deuteronomy, the the next time that the word saint occurs, all the way through Zechariah, God's chosen people who respond in faith and obedience to him are called saints. By the time we get to Matthew 27, verse 52, at the crucifixion of Christ, Jesus is on the cross, and one of the five things that happen, remember the the sun goes out and, and, and the temple veil is torn? Do you remember what the next one was? The earthquakes. But do you remember something happened during the earthquake? Matthew 27, 52, it says the graves of the saints were opened. There aren't any New Testament people around. The New Testament hasn't started until after the burial and resurrection of Christ, the new covenant that's in his blood that was sacrificed. Whose graves opened? The Old Testament believers. They're called saints. And they've been praying. And so verse 8 says, the prayers of the saints. God's been collecting these things since the Garden of Eden. God has been collecting the prayers. And the saints of the Old Testament and those of the New all have their prayers collected. All of them are in front of the throne of the Almighty God. But it wasn't real clear in the Old Testament exactly what all they were praying for. And then Jesus clarifies that. You know what the most well-known prayer in the Bible is? The one Jesus left for all of us as a model. Now you all know it. You believe it. You say it. And it starts out, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It talks about the one on the throne. And what is the very first petition? Thy kingdom come. You know what's amazing is Martin Luther said this. He said that second statement makes us realize we only have a slight understanding of how serious that request is. 500 years ago, Martin Luther wrote in his his discourse on this passage, he said, this is the terrible petition that invites God to powerfully enter the arena of humanity. Now what he said is, and I agree with him, there's two parts to it. When I say thy kingdom come, I'm saying God rule my life. I want your kingdom to control me. I want to be in step with your plan. But that's not all we're saying. There's something much bigger. It's saying, come and rule. Come and take back the rebel, the rebellion, the the squatters. Evict sin from the universe. See, that's what thy kingdom come is all about. And so Jesus instructed, and and it wasn't as clear in the Old Testament, but Jesus instructed each of us to pray this personally. And when we pray, it's a request for God not only to rule my life, yes, and that's vital. Thy kingdom come, rule my life, control me. But I'm also saying, Lord, bring vengeance upon all this sin and injustice and murder and 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 genocide in Rwanda where the Hootsies and the Tutsis are killing each other, just hacking each other with machetes. Do something about what's going on in Sudan. And the Lord says, I hear that. And I am going to do that. In fact, the Lord tells us what he's going to do as as we look at the scriptures because we might say, why doesn't God do something? Well, Revelation 5 says he's going to do something. And he's going to, at a moment, allow all these prayers that have been collected of all of his peoples, all the saints saying, thy kingdom come, 
When we say, why doesn't God do something? He is. And he's written down what he's going to do. In fact, a lot of people don't even, haven't read the script. They don't even understand what he's doing. He's written 15 chapters about what he's going to do to rectify sin in the universe. Revelation 6, we read verse 1. Revelation 7, where he deploys his missionaries for the tribulation who cannot be killed, who speak every language. That's probably the ultimate expression of the gift of tongues, the 144,000 who preach in the language of every kingdom and tongue and tribe and nation. And then in chapter 8, we already read, he starts taking the prayers and hurling them down like fire upon the earth. And that's only the first three chapters of the fifteen. There's nine, he opens the abyss, and 10, and 11, and 12. By 11, we get the two witnesses that we've all heard about. And 12, and 13, and 14, 13, we get the Antichrist. And 14, and 15, and 16, you get to Armageddon and all that stuff. And 17, the destruction of religious world. 18, the destruction of the commercial world. 19, the second coming. And 20, the final judgment. He has 15 chapters of saying, I've got a lot planned. Just keep praying for my kingdom to come. Revelation explains when God's wrath comes. And in Revelation 5.8, we see the first time where all the prayers have gone. And I want you to remember that. They're not getting lost. Keep praying. In fact, after the morning service, someone came to me and said, did you read about in the paper, you know, the, the uh, um, antique store fellow that was here in Kalamazoo, beaten to death with a bat. And that was one of their relatives. And they said, they said that's, that's horrific. And I said, yeah, that's just like the 120 in the mosque. I said, it's horrific. Keep praying for God's kingdom to come because he's going to answer. Well, Revelation 5, God has something planned and in verse 8, we see that the prayers of all humanity lifted up from all the saints, from Adam and Eve, throughout all the Old Testament era, through the New Testament era, right up to the most recent prayer, have, have been brought to his throne, brought in front of him, and God is so amazing. Every prayer has landed in one spot. Now, I don't know about you. The older I get, I have to start having these little patterns. I mean, when I walk in the house... I keep walking until I get to the place where I put my keys. And I always put my keys there. If anybody moves keys, I come and say, someone move those keys. Because I don't want to lose my keys. And I go right there. And then I go and I kick off my shoes and they go in this spot. Boy, wait till you guys get old. You start doing stuff in patterns. And if, if anything's out of place, it's just a disaster. Every prayer goes to one spot. There is that altar in front of the throne and those little bowls surrounding the throne. And God says, I don't forget. God doesn't misplace. He doesn't ignore us. He is treasuring up his wrath, as Romans 2.5 says. And it finally, like an electrical charge building, when you see, I remember when we used to live in Oklahoma, you can see for so far, you'd see those clouds, and then you'd see the thunderhead striking up the cumulonimbus clouds just going straight up, and then they would hit the part of the atmosphere wherever they hit, and they anvil out, and you knew it was coming. And you could hear it in the distance, rumbling and finally the lightning would just start and that's what revelation 6 through 20 is it's the charge is building god is treasuring his wrath against sin and finally in revelation 6 it starts blazing like a thunderstorm well what's the context where is this introduced revelation 5 
Do you remember where we started months ago? Revelation 4 and 5 are a set. And the set talks about worshiping God. Do you realize that all the horrors, and, and before we go today for 14 more minutes, I'm going to read to you real quickly a quick overview of the tribulation. But did you know all of those events take place as the saints are on their faces worshiping a holy God? We think of the tribulation kind of like a movie, like a war movie or something. It's not. It is a worship scene. As all the redeemed are saying, God, we have prayed for your will to come, and now you're doing it. And you are, you are conquering back the rebellion. And we bless your name for it. Well, the concept is this. In Revelation 5, verse 9, we find the final element of true biblical worship, and it's this. True biblical worship understands God's wrath is against unconfessed, unforsaken, and unforgiven sin. Now, the whole Old Testament is beautifully illustrating this. You know what Ezekiel said? He said to Israel, he said, your sins are like an avalanche on you. And what he said is people, people live their life and, and, and they don't realize they're piling up all these sins, and if they don't do anything about it, the pile gets so big, it just kind of buries them. Kind of like the two girls that were sitting on the railroad crossing this week, and a, some train had a problem that dumped hundreds of tons of coal on them, and they were texting, and they died under the coal. You know, it's, uh, I don't know what the lesson of that news thing was. Don't text or don't use coal, but it was in the news, you know, and it's just how we just have all these uncollected thoughts in the news. But God's wrath is against all those sins that bury us. And did you know this morning, at the instant of death, each one of us are either going to die with our sins like an avalanche on us, or all of our sins once and for all already on Jesus Christ. You understand that there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those that have the Son have their sins forgiven. Those who do not have the Son die under the avalanche of their sins, and they're going to have to stand covered with their sins in front of a holy God that says, I offered you throughout your whole earthly existence to have those sins taken care of, and you refuse me, and so you get to carry them forever, and my wrath will forever burn against your sin. I offered for them to be taken away. You refused. You see, people don't go to hell because they never heard of Jesus. They go to hell because they're sinners. And the wrath of God is forever against sin. And by the way, your parents can't take away your sin. And water in a baptistry can't take away sin. The only thing to take away sin is me confessing and forsaking and receiving the free gift of the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, to cleanse me once and for all from all my sins, past, present, and future. Well, for those that don't, True biblical worship understands God's wrath is against all unconfessed, all unforsaken, and all unforgiven sin. So make sure when you leave today, if you leave here with any unconfessed, unforsaken, unforgiven sin, and you die, you know that person that was driving madly down I-94 in the middle of the night with their headlights off waiting to crash into someone? Do you think those people in their car thought they were going to be instantly killed in that fiery collision? No. They probably thought someday I'll figure out this stuff with God, you know? Do you realize that you don't know if you're going to make it home today? Don't die with your sins on you. 
If you do, you have to pay for them forever. That's what true worship says. You know, God's first warning about how serious sin is is when he flooded the earth. His immense wrath against sin caused him to destroy all but eight humans in a flood of water. Now, I don't know that because there's remnants of the flood on every mountaintop around the world. I don't know that because I've been to the Answers in Genesis Creation Museum. I know that because God said he did it. You understand that? God says he killed every single human being on the earth except for Noah, his wife, his three sons, and each of their wives. Eight people. God said it. And he killed every breathing air-breathing creature, and he flooded every square inch of this planet. That's why when I pull a commentary off of my shelf and this well-meaning Christian says, it was at the Black Sea, that's where the flood was. It's on the Anatolian plain. It was just in Mesopotamia. I thought, who are you to disagree with God? Just because science doesn't like you? Science does verify the flood. It's just you, don't want, you just don't want to believe them. There are remnants on, on the top of every mountain, from Mount Everest to the Andes Mountains, all the way to the Rockies. There's, water was on those mountains. God says, yeah, I did it. <laughs> I, I hate sin so much I killed everyone except for a new beginning. So the greatest time God showed his wrath against sin was the flood, but then his second was even a greater warning. He said, sin is so bad I have to kill my own son. Remember, you either die with your sins or my son takes him? He said, that's how much I hate sin. Well, real quickly, let me show you in chapter 6, and we're going to close. Let me show you the staggering numbers of how much God hates sin, and uh, I'll do this in nine minutes. This is your nine-minute overview of the tribulation, the staggering numbers of the great tribulation. Basically, if the tribulation happens in the next few years, if it kicks off in the next few years, According to the world population clock, there are 7,034,897,482 people that were alive yesterday, according to them. If the tribulation starts in the next decade, the Bible says half of those 7 billion will die. You say, did you get that from Tim Left Behind LaHaye? No, I got it from God Almighty who's already told us what's going to happen. It's like the flood. You just, if you believe what he said. So what does God say? Well, he says in the great tribulation, if it happens in this decade, two and a half million people will die every day. Every day. That's a lot of people. How do they even bury them? Let's put it in perspective. In the German death camp called Auschwitz, they used all German engineering skills possible. They could only kill a thousand people a day. It was just, I mean, with every bit of German ingenuity at work, they could only herd, capture, gas, and burn a thousand a day. And they did it nonstop. And that was the worst of the death camps. Well, that means during the tribulation, 2,500 times as many people will die every day. I mean, think of having 2,500 Auschwitzes operating at that speed around the world. To put it in Auschwitz terms, the number of people that died every 24 hours at that death camp will die every 15 seconds. That means you'll have a holocaust every 15 seconds. According to God, it's not very exciting. It's horrible to think about. I mean, these are people. And if it's in the next 
few years, it's people that you know. In terms of living on earth, it'll be like being in Auschwitz death camp and every day the toll be equivalent to the entire World War II Holocaust. Every other day, three million will die. Every day, three million. Every other day, six million. That's how many the total Holocaust killed. It's like having a Holocaust every other day. What is it? Well, look at chapter 6, verse 8. One out of every two people will die. If you look at that, it says that, that starts there, it says a fourth will die. But if you read all the way through chapter 16, you see the other fourth get killed. And basically, that amounts to 11 times the current population of the United States will die during the tribulation. So think of the United States and multiply it out 11 times, and that's how many human beings are going to die in that short period of time of the tribulation. Number two, look at chapter 8, verse 7. Not only will one out of every two die, but number two, one-third of all living vegetation, grass, trees, everything green is destroyed. A third of it. Now, I used to live in Oklahoma, and there used to be these funny signs. I remember when Bonnie and I first drove from Rhode Island to Oklahoma, I said, hey, take a picture of that sign, honey. It's so cute. And it says, do not drive into the smoke. And I looked out, and it was perfectly blue skies. I said, isn't that a strange sign? So I got to, to the church, and I said, what are all those funny signs that say don't drive in the smoke? They said, you'll find out. About August, you'll find out. About August, the prairie fire started. When those things are going, you don't drive in the smoke. You pull over. You can't even see the, your hood, the hood ornament if you had one. You know, you can't see. It's just dense smoke. And it's just little tiny grass fires. This, look what it says in verse 7. The first sound, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and the green grass was burned up. That's amazing. Number three. Look at verse 12, same chapter, Revelation 8, verse 12. The sun and moon will be darkened. Nature goes in revolt. You can't count. You know, the solar lunar tab tables for fishing and hunting? Forget it. Everything goes crazy. Sun and moon are darkened. Uh, look at chapter 9. Keep, keep turning the page to chapter 9, verse 3. The gates of the pit. I call it hell, but it's not really the lake of fire. It's this holding place for these demonic creatures opens up. And herds of locusts the size of horses... Have you ever seen a close-up of a locust? Those things are menacing. You, know, you get a National Geographic and look at a blow-up of what those things look like and imagine them the size of a horse and then imagine them being a demonic creature that come flying out of this pit and it says that they have a sting like a scorpion and the pain sears for five months and the Bible says that people will beg God to let them die because the pain is so searing from these things. Number five, there'll be a worldwide famine. Uh, it, it's mentioned in, in Revelation 18.8, it says uh, death and mourning and famine. Jesus says in Matthew 24, there'll be famines and earthquakes. And Revelation 6 says the food will get so expensive people can't even buy it. You know our little drought we had? You know, it wasn't little, but it, the biggest one since 1956. So it's the biggest one since I've been alive. That's going to be global. You know what's neat is we get a little touch of what it's going to be like in the news. But there's going to be a worldwide famine unlike anything the world has ever seen. Number six, there'll be a, a war so bloody, the blood of those killed in battle flows for 200 miles. Now, you know, you go to an accident scene or, you know, to an emergency room and it just seems like blood just goes. But, uh, you know, blood that splashes, the Bible says, to the height of a horse's bridle. I remember when I used to wear my big yellow rubber boots. 
And my mom would say, stay out of the mud puddles. And when she wasn't looking, I'd go, poof, like that. I could only get the water to this high. How much do you have to have to have blood splashing this high to the height of a horse's bridle, 200 miles long? All told, number seven, during the Great Tribulation, as many as half the people on earth will be killed. Now do you see why the person that knew all about this, the apostle Paul, said that the church is looking for the glorious appearing and the blessed hope? It's not a blessing or a hope to live with those locust horse demons. It's not a blessing or a hope to see two and a half million people dying and trying to find a place to bury them and walk over them every day. It's not a blessed hope. You see, the church, us, you and I today, are part of God's plan because he set aside Israel temporarily because they rejected their calling and mission. And so the Lord says, I'm going to call out for myself a people that will be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and I'm going to have them be in the world to be my witnesses. And that's what we're supposed to be, by the way. That's the only reason we're here. But there's a day coming when he says, that's enough. I'm going to return and restore the house, the tabernacles of David. James 15. James in Acts 15 says that. And the apostles understood that the church was temporary and God's going to return and work with Israel. And when that happens, we're going to be around the throne with our bowls of prayer and watch the Lord unleash this judgment. So, to be participating. Now do you see why the Lord said we're supposed to pray every day and say, our Father who art in heaven, I want my life to hallow your name. And I'm asking for your kingdom to come right now, right here. I want you to rule my life. But more than that, I want you to bring justice, vengeance. I want you to end the sin of this world. Let's practice that. Why don't we stand together? We're going to close by quoting the Lord's Prayer. But before we do that, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, I've said about three times this morning, the worst thing to happen would be to die with your sins under that avalanche. Did you know that this morning, Jesus Christ actually attends Calvary Bible Church and every other place that he is proclaimed? And he would love to make sure that you don't die under the avalanche of your sins. He would like to take all of your sins on himself. And he would like to give you what each of us who know him have. And that is the knowledge that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all sins. Nothing worse than to leave here and die in your sins. And if you don't know how to call on his name and have someone guide you through the word of God, then every service, we always have the elders and, and, and our godly Titus two women. You can walk up to one of them and say, you know, I'm really not sure my sins are forgiven. You know, I, I, I did something in front of the church once or my parents did something to me, but boy, I'm not, I'm not sure. You should be sure. You should be sure that you know all of your sins are on Christ. So that's at the end of the service. But let's invite the Lord's kingdom to come. Let's pray that prayer before we go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen? God bless you as you go.